You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. This week, our North American editor, Matt McDermott, is on the exchange to share with us his conversation with Mark Clifford of the legendary 90s electronic band Seafeel. When I first ever heard the Cocteau Twins, um, I'd never heard anything like that. I'd, I was kind of into music. Um, I liked music and I'd kind of dabbled in different things, but mostly rock music. But it was the Cocteau Twins. When I heard that, it was just like, I just never heard anything like this and felt like something I could do. Felt like if I wanted to make music, that, that this was the way for me to go. Formed in 1992, Seafield provided a bridge between the electronic nouveau and indie rock, being ultimately instrumental in opening up the parallel reality of electronic music to the more adventurous members of the indie scene. This year, Seafield reissued some of their catalogue on Warp, and Matt caught up with band member Mark Clifford to chat about what it was like to collaborate with their huge inspiration, Cocteau Twins, about playing all-nighters at Brixton Academy, and navigating expectation from big labels. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Seafill on RA's Exchange. Today, I am incredibly honored to speak with Mark Clifford, the primary driving force behind the legendary British band Seafeel. Um, I'm speaking with Mark on the occasion a few months after some key reissues of uh, what I call a purple patch in the band's career. Um, during which they released the 1995 record, Succor, via the legendary Warp Records. Um, their third record, uh, 1996's Chivax. Um, both of those have been recently reissued via Warp Records, as well as a box set covering this period, Rupt Plus Flex 94 through 96. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. It's a pleasure. Um, so you, you've really been like looking back to this period, um, you know, in the mid nineties, um, in which, you know, you were, you were working very hard, both at home as well as in the Cocteau Twins studio. And, um, you know, I guess just like a simple question, like how, how compare your life now to the way it was back then. How, how is it different? How is it the same? Uh, do you mean my work life? Like my music life, you mean? Or, my, or just generally? Both, if you would. That's a really difficult question. I mean, obviously very different just because I'm older now. I guess, you know, just... I think even if what you're doing is the same, your perspective on life and, and your what drives you and your ambitions change a little bit as you get older. Uh, I was probably more... Uh, single-minded maybe back then um, 
I probably didn't listen so much. I probably didn't, um, I probably tended to, yes, it's, I think being single-minded is probably the thing. I tend to listen to people more now, I think. I was very driven, and so I, I just kind of ploughed a furrow and didn't really, you know, like a horse that's blinkered, you just don't, you just don't, it's like you have your own way of going, and that's the only way you're going to go. Um, even even if it kind of puts some people out a little bit, unfortunately. That's just, you know, I think that's something when you're young, you're more likely to be that way, I think. Because um, I, I think as you grow older, you, you kind of appreciate more how your, your actions affect other people. Even very small things, just the way you interact with people changes a lot. And you learn, and you learn to kind of handle situations a little bit better. And you, So I think I'm better like that now. My life in general isn't a lot different, really. I'm not like um, I haven't. I don't feel like I've grown up into a kind of very conservative. Um, I don't. I'm not like I don't have a, the whole nuclear family, you know, with two cars and the drive and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, my life's different, but the same. Let's put it that way. Different, but the same. Yeah, I think it, it's very interesting, like you mentioned this metaphor of horse blinders, which is something, which is a metaphor that I use myself a lot. And, and like, you know, this like sort of driven, um, kind of like creative myopia, like do you, do you feel like being in that state like allowed you to do so much over this brief period of time between like 94 and 96? Yes, I definitely, because when I was, when I look back at that time, and I, obviously I had to, in terms of putting this reissue together, because there's so much extra material on there, which had to be found and listened to and so forth. Um, I realized that, yeah, I, I, I was actually very impatient in the sense that I kind of moved really quickly, I think, from... Um, it's like taking, I think I took in a lot of information, a lot of music, and it's not like I want to be like any of that music myself, but as a whole, it's like constantly taking on new new, new um, inspirations. So it was noticeably a, a period where we moved very quickly as a band. And obviously, I, I, that was obviously partly to do with me, or a large part to do with me because of the way I am. Um, and maybe in a sense, maybe in some ways, left the other members behind a little bit, especially towards the end of that period. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. Like, I, I think Sarah Peacock, who, uh, you know, is widely known as the voice of Seafield, like, recently referred to that period as being somewhat fractious. And obviously, like, Chivox was, um, you know, the last record before, like, an extended hiatus. And, and, and you feel like, part of this was like due to this like incredibly driven like we must move forward creatively uh type of attitude that that has like the potential to like alienate some band members yeah, exactly that's exactly the word it alienates people because unless they're completely on board with you or they actually understand what what where you're going and what you're doing i appreciate how difficult it is now if you're if you're running to try and keep up with something and you don't even quite know what it is, that's a very frustrating position to be in, I think. So I completely understand the position of the other members, absolutely. But that's just that's just the way I was then. And 
I think the other side of the coin is if I hadn't have been like that, we might have just stagnated and not really, you know, you know we could have just got stuck. Maybe, maybe it would have been a good thing. We, we might just got stuck in the keek sound and just maybe kept on repeating that all the time, which wasn't something that interested me back then. I didn't, I wasn't interested in repeating ideas. Um, though some, sometimes you think back and you think if we had done keek two, keek three and just kind of, you know, kept going, what would our trajectory have been then? Would we have like been, as what Records hoped at the time, we would have become a very, very big band. I think as Steve once said to me, um, the kind of, <laughs> the, the kind of 90s Pink Floyd, I think he said to me, I think he mm. imagined this as being this kind of real psychedelic thing that would play huge venues and stuff with massive light shows or something. Um, yeah, I, I think that was a bit tongue-in-cheek. I don't think he really, that was his complete vision was like, you know, me, Roger Waters and Sarah, like, you know, I don't even know the names of the other members. Who's the singer? Um, oh, we had like, uh, we we have David Gilmore. Oh, Roger Waters is the singer, that's right. David Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd be, uh, obviously I'd be Gilmore, I guess, you know. <laughs> I could I could see it, you know, I'm. I'm I'm seeing like Seafield live at Pompeii for sure, you know, like that's that that needs to happen. But I I do understand like what Steve Beckett, um, you know, from Warp Records, who signed Seafield for Succor and is is obviously like beyond this new reissue campaign. Like I I see what he is saying based off of Keep, uh, the 1993 debut from. Seafield released on Two Pure, which is just this blissful swirl of a record. It's a massive sound. Um, and around the time Succor comes out, like it, like it becomes, like the sound becomes a bit more insular, a mm-hmm. bit more related to things like uh, Apex Twin, who has obviously like remixed Seafield and, and the rest of like the Warp Milieu um, it's kind of like a conscious decision, like this, like idea of like fitting into a different scene. Um, it wasn't a con. It wasn't like it wasn't a, a meditated thing. No, it, it wasn't all premeditated. Um, it was, um, but clearly, signing to Warp had an influence. I mean, you're suddenly you, you're in a different camp with different people, and and you're going to different events and. Absorbing all of that is, is is bound to influence the way you think about music. I think when we're on Two Pure, Two Pure was still very much an indie label, and our you know our label mates were indie. You know, we had PJ Harvey on there and Stereo Lab. These are as unique as they all are. That's not to say not I'm not putting them all in the same bag. They're completely different and kind of brilliant on their own, or each to their own. But it means you're kind of absorbing a different kind of influence going to shows like that. Um, so I, I guess yeah, it, it was it was a shift, um, which you know if if I'd been more if maybe if I'd been less kind of like I said blinkered, I might have been able to to use these new influences and still keep that keek sound. I might have been able to. I think maybe the stare through EP is more like that. Mm-hmm. And Sucker could easily have been more like an album of that kind of stuff, that kind of thing. But it wasn't like a great time for us. And when we were recording Sucker, um, there wasn't like tensions particularly that was, there weren't palpable tensions at that point. But um, 
it wasn't like as exciting anymore. It didn't feel as exciting, and I think it was an interesting time. And I really, I really loved making that record. But it was a different kind of joy. It was a kind of a yeah. It was a kind of post ecstasy rather than ecstasy. It was like the come down, you know, um, where you're still in a good place, but you're not waving your hands in the air anymore. Hmm. You know, you provided such like evocative metaphors to describe this period from, from being blinkered to uh, not waving your hands in the air anymore. And you, you sort of described um, the shows that you would end up at, you know, bigger indie shows with like your two pure label mates. But from what I understand, the uh, Brixton all-nighters were also like highly influential on, uh, you know, your sound and what you just felt was cool, what you resonated with. Can you describe what they were and how you soaked in that influence? Uh, so the Brixton All Nighters is a place called the Brixton Academy, um, which is a large venue, maybe two and a half, I, I don't know exactly how many, two and a half thousand, maybe three thousand. Um, yeah, and they used to do these um, all-nighters, which at the time was basically 11 to 6 o'clock in the morning, which isn't unusual for a lot of countries, but in the UK was quite unusual. We, we, that's not a culture we have here. It's not a warm country. It's not the sort of country generally you want to be out at 6 o'clock in the morning. But um, they were just really... I can't, I can't even explain how it influenced you, but I guess it's like, it's, it's, it's like feeling a whole different experience, um, both with the music, but also the people, the atmosphere, everything about it was very, um, yeah, it took you to like a world, it took you away from the real world, and, you know, you, you kind of existed in a, di in a different place. And for days and days afterwards, it would have this effect on you that you wouldn't feel part of, like, the mainstream. Mm. I, I mean, I can remember walking back from some of these sometimes. We used to live in Blackheath, and Blackheath is kind of like this part of South London where there's a lot of residential houses, but around a huge green area. Um, I mean, it's, it's not really a park. It's called a heath. Um, it's just open land, basically. And um, I can remember coming out of those at six in the morning and just... Once there was like a the London Marathon was starting from there, and we we were walking up home, just as all these like, um, you know, runners were like all limbering up and getting ready to start their race, and it was the the most bizarre experience. Just like we'd been up all night, like, you know, doing whatever we were doing, and um, on a complete other plane, <laughs> you know. You, you know, we've, we've all been there, like amongst the uh, churchgoers or marathon runners, you know, like uh, being being on some completely different, uh, far less healthy plane of existence, I think is, is how it feels. But uh, who, what, what artists were playing, you know, the Bricks and All-Nighters or like what records were you hearing and getting turned on by? Um, I guess the band who's most associated with that is, is the Orb. They used to do quite a lot of those All-Nighters. Um, but they were largely, um, I guess just, there would be like, there would be dub music. I mean, they'd have, obviously they have chill out rooms, they have different areas a lot of the time, but I guess it was, yeah, 
just I guess house probably. I don't I um I can't even really remember to be honest with you. I I remember dancing to just about anything in those days. Um but it was you know, it was it was a, a positive atmosphere. It wasn't like industrial music or anything like that. It was very kind of uplifting. There there is like this sort of like beatific energy to uh Alex Patterson and the orb that like still comes across to this day where there, there's something like comforting about their sound, uh, this like ambient house for the E generation. And, and I know that early on they would, they would play things like Steve Hillage and, you know, would kind of like mix in, um, you know, traditional 60s psychedelia with like this newer sound. Um, but they also kind of like, you sort of came to like this greater appreciation of dub music through the orb as well. Is that correct? Uh, oh yes, definitely. I mean, because there was a big, there was a big dub part. I mean, not dub in the sense of, um, um, the use of heavy bass and, and, and space in the music and, you know, being able to kind of trigger sounds, but not into a kind of, not into a, a solid wall where it doesn't mean anything, but where it kind of, you can hear this, where it adds something to the music, where it kind of takes you somewhere because of the sound of it. Um, yeah, they were very, very good at like creating music that had a lot of space in it and yet had a lot of interest as well, which is quite a skill, I think, you know. Yeah, and this went, went on to be like, sort of this monumental piece of the Seafield sound field as well. Like, like where, you know, effects are as important as what's being played. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that with Seafield. Um, perhaps when we first started out, when we very first started out, and our, we, we had a slightly more song structure, we probably could have played those songs on acoustic guitar, but <laughs> there's nothing you could really play. Well, you could play it, but it would be as boring as any, it would just, there'd be no point. Yeah, the effects the effects completely rule the sound. But I, I hope not in a kind of wishy-washy, gratuitous way. I mean, it was thought about, there was like, there was some thought about it and um, it was never just, you know, whack as many delays on as we can. Because we didn't, I mean, I certainly didn't have much gear to start with. In terms of um, guitar tech, I, I really did not have much. I maybe had like this unit called a GP, GP8. Um, I had a boss delay pedal, I had a, a microverb and a whammy pedal, and that was really it. I, did, it, I didn't have like a huge setup in terms of, of gear. So it was kind of, um, it was one of the reasons why we disliked being labelled as shoegaze back in the day, because to me a lot of shoegaze music was just about whacking as much delay on and reverb on everything. and. And I, I didn't like the fact that that's how people thought our music was. Um, I'm not, I, I don't know if that was what they took from it, but um, we, were, I, we were quite careful about what we used and what we didn't use. Yeah, it was a, it was a limited kit from, from the beginning. And, and like, uh, from what I understand, like the Insonic ASR uh, was like also instrumental in the sound. And, and, and can you like, walk me through, you know, like for the kind of producers out there, they're going to be like so interested. And I know you want to uh, 
you know, sort of obscure exactly what you did, but can you walk me through like what you were using from Keek and moving on to Succor? So the, the ASR-10 was the crucial piece, um, especially, I mean, we'd, we'd used it, I'd used it on Keek, um, on, on a lot of the sequence tracks like Climatic Phase or Plain Song. But I think um, certainly on the rhythmic part of, of Sucker and Stair 3P, it had a huge influence because it just it just opened up this massive, this huge resource of sound to me because previously it had a drum machine. And as much as I love drum machines, they are, and were back then, very set. You know, you, they weren't particularly, well, certainly not the one I had, was not particularly flexible. You could tune, you could change um, EQ, but... They weren't they weren't as sophisticated as they are now, not unless you had a very, very good one. Mm. So suddenly I had like access I could buy a sample disc um with loads and loads of sounds on, or I could just go out and make my own sounds and hit things and stuff. And it's just like it's just a huge input of of materials, well unlimited really, what you can do. So I think that that, that had a big effect because it's it gave the album a very different rhythmic structure to keep, I think. Mm, mm, for sure. And, you know, we keep, we keep talking about the stare through EP, um, which was released in 1994 as, as, as this kind of like creative breakthrough uh, is, and I'm thinking, especially of like, you know, the tune Spangle, which was, uh, famously, like remixed by Autiker, uh, it's just this like ominous, you know, ethereal track that just hangs in the air. Like, do you view Stare Through as this creative breakthrough during this period? Um, yeah, I think so. I think um, it was a obviously it's a kind of transition record in many ways. Mm. Um, I'm very proud of the tracks on that record. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Seafield releases, just because I think it's. It feels how I remember making it. It feels very free and easy, and not it didn't take a lot of time or a lot of effort. <clears throat> it's very. It feels very kind of like natural. Um, so yeah, I think I think the Stair Three EP was. Um, it's a shame. Like I said earlier, it's a shame we I didn't or we didn't explore a few more ideas like that. Um, before Sucker, maybe, that we could have done another EP, or um, it was a very quick change then to, to recording the album, and I think that once we had Fracture, and because it's quite a much harder sound, and it was quite an exciting track to make, that kind of basically had a big influence on what the rest of the album would have sounded like. Mm, mm. So, so you're getting some like more massive kind of like lumbering drum sounds at that point. Yeah. yeah. Less, we are just less fluid, more um, kind of heavy and almost clunky at times, which I kind of like. It's, it's kind of got, a, it's got a strange kind of, it's got a rhythm like somebody who's not really quite operating correctly. Mm. Mm. So sort of like this, uh, this like kind of malfunctioning robot or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not dance music rhythm. It's not, it's not fluid and like. It, it's, I think it's quite. Um, 
off-putting almost. Hmm. That makes sense. It, it it does, and it, like it's interesting. Like I, w- I was speaking about like the Autiker, uh remix of of Spangle, and around this time, like in part due to uh, regulations against raving and free parties and you know orbital raves in in the UK, Autiker was also like kind of exploring this idea of non-repetitive beats um, and like the beginning of this like so-called IDM sound. Um, how did you link up with Rob and Sean and, and how were they an inspiration? Well, I think, I mean, Orteca, by this point at least, I mean, they were working, doing something completely, they were, you know, in a completely different direction to us. I think even at that point, I'm trying to think what their record would have been around the time of Supper. Um, because there's a kind of, there's a sim, not that they're similar, but there's a kind of similar feel, I think, to Incunabula and to Keek. They're both very optimistic records, I would say. Mm. That one came in 93 with Amber in 94. Okay, so yeah, so Amber's going the same kind of way, I, yeah, which is probably for the same reasons. I mean, we, we used to hang out with them a lot at, sh- at gigs and stuff and events. And I think after a couple of years of, of hearing this kind of, the same kind of rhythm and basically techno in-house, I think it's natural that you, you, you're going to think there must be more to this and want to try and um, find new ideas in in the rhythmic part of your music, or put new ideas in there. I mean, we we, we never we never worked. We weren't even living in the same place a lot of the time, so I don't think we had much influence on each other in that sense. But I think we kind of came from the same. Maybe we came from the same place at that time. I don't know in London. Um, in, I, I don't mean I mean metaphorically. I mean the place as in scene. Understood. Like a scene that also included, uh, you know, Luke Vibert, uh, Richard D. James, and you know, all the all the classic warp luminaries. And it's interesting, though. You talked about how it would have been nice to make another EP, like Stare Through, prior to going into like the album sessions that would produce Sakura as well as Chavox, which came on Reflex. Um, but there was a bit of pressure to follow up. Like Keek was a fairly like major success from indie standards. Is that correct? Yeah, Keek, Keek did relatively well. Yes, and, and even Stair Three EP. I mean, it's, it, I think um, I'd have to check this, but I'm pretty sure it charted at about fifty three, which is it's, it's nothing. You know, it's not like, but it's still a surprise. And we were on. You know, we definitely were in the indie chart at numbers. Because I remember being on the indie indie chart show on the on the t- television, um, it was like I think I'm pretty sure it was Suede before us. So there was this kind of crazy indie, you know, it's, you know Suede obviously. I think yeah, it's loud, brash, you know, whatever. And then ours came on. We didn't have a video or anything. It was nothing. And then the bass was so heavy on stair through that they, they'd had to compress it so much it just sounded like this tiny little sound. <laughs> after after Swade was really you know dang or all mixed beautifully for radio and TV and then there was our track, which was just like it sounded like a lot of bass with a, a tiny shimmer of a sound on top. 
<laughs> made me really happy at the time. Oh, that's, it's completely incredible. But obviously, you know, like, first of all, like a record like that charting, you know, is it, it seems like this like idealistic dream world, but obviously like post Keek, you were out on the road and, you know, taking on like the responsibilities of being a popular rock band. And, and how did that sit with you? Uh, not, it was okay. It was, um, <clears throat> it wasn't as glamorous as I thought it would be. It wasn't as, um, I don't know, you have this idea that you go on tour and it's just one big party and <laughs> maybe it is for some people, if you're that kind of, but I think we soon found out we were not those kind of people. You know, we <laughs> we finished a gig and the last thing any of us wanted to do really was go out and party. We just wanted to kind of, you know, drink and go back to the hotel really. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating at that time. I think one of the reasons it was for us especially is that we were very tied to technology because we had to use... Um, Technology then was not as strong as it is today, clearly. It's advanced a lot. And so we had to take a lot of stuff with us, a lot of stuff which was could easily break in transit, no matter how well packaged it was in beautiful flight cases and stuff. And so every gig was a bit of a stress in soundcheck. Is this going to work? And it was like, it just became, you know, we couldn't just plug in and play and then, you know, crowd love it and we go off stage you know woo 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 it was like it was like we go on we do sound check we go on stage hope everything worked and we came off it was more like a relief everything did work more than more than wasn't that a great gig that's how i remember it anyway i mean i think maybe you know i had to take care of more of the te technology side of it so maybe it affected me more um so nowadays when we tour, it, it's, I actually, I actually almost enjoy it because it's just so, everything's so much more reliable now. Everything weighs less as well. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I understand the anxiety induced by lugging around gear that can fail at any moment. Was there, is, is, it, is there like a particular gig in your memory from that period, not to make you recount bad memories where things did go awry? Um, actually, I mean, there was a gig, we, we did it in Belgium, um, see, I don't remember this very well, I, in fact, I had to be reminded of this by, um, by, actually by Darren recently, um, that we played this, this kind of small festival at a botanical, like a, what do you call those, like, a, not a greenhouse, but like a hot house or something, it was like at, a, at um, a botanical gardens or something in, in Belgium. And it was a really beautiful place, but the stage and everything was set up and it was hot, you know, it was so hot. And we had real problems with our gear. Um, I'd obviously wiped this from, like like a traumatised <laughs> child, I'd wiped this from my mind, clearly. But Darren told me, yeah, everything broke, nothing, everything kept breaking. And I think he's, I think Van Morrison was playing as well. It, was, it wasn't just us, it was, it was quite a big thing. Um, because Dan reminded me that we we he wanted the he wanted the backstage cleared or something when he arrived. Um, I don't think we did. I think we probably just refused. But like, I think there was. A, I think he was that kind of a person who thought, "I'm here now. This is all. You know, I don't want to see another face or something. I don't know. Whatever." 
Um, and there was definitely, there was there was sound checks I can remember where maybe one of the, because we used to use ADATs. I don't know if you know what an ADAT machine mm -hmm. is. It's like it uses videotape, essentially, VHS tape. And um, I can remember one or two sound checks where we put the tape in and it crunched up part of the tape. And I mean, we always took backups just in case. But, um, you know, you start imagining that happening. and It never happened in the show, thankfully. But you start imagining, you know, suddenly you're halfway through a track and the backing rhythm or something, it's suddenly like, and it's kind of, kind yeah. of you know, and you're still playing. And it's, and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and I know crowds are really forgiving. We've learned this since, that they, they don't hate you because you have, in fact, in some ways people like it because it's part of the live experience in some ways. You know, we there's more than once we've started a track again back then because the click track didn't come through at the right time for just, or we didn't hear it at the right time or so things like that. Um, nothing, but fortunately we were really, we were, we were luckier than I'm making out here. It sounds like we were walking on eggshells all the time. Actually the, the equipment did hold up, but because we had one or two problems occasionally, it, it sits in your head. Then this is going to happen. You're kind of one day it's going to happen. I completely understand. You know, you're like, teetering on the limits of technology and 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 did this kind of like did this encourage you to envision Seafield as a studio project and thus embark on this 94 to 96 period where from what i understand you were kind of like staying up all night just just working away in a way that would be more similar to you know, what Aphex was doing, like in terms of like this lone enterprise as opposed to like a traditional band. Yeah, I think so. It was more like that. Um, and obviously the technology, again, when we got a sampler and the ADAT and um, some better studio effects as well, obviously all of that lends its, because it's like suddenly you can just do anything. And for someone like me, then I'm just going to get completely involved and lost in that. And again, not seeing that other members of the band maybe wanted to try some ideas as well. Um, but it's kind of, um, it just becomes a new like fascination. And it's, when I find something new that I like, I tend to, you know, I, I tend to really throw myself into that one thing. And then I find something else and find something. I always use the analogy with, with me. It's a bit like clothes. I don't, I never have a wardrobe of clothes because as soon as I buy something new I like, something else I don't want to wear anymore. So I never build. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's like a kind of constant replacement rather than the building of something. It's, it's kind of like a one in, one out rule. Exactly, yeah. So, which is why I do tend to jump from idea to idea. I mean, I, I, I hope there's a there's a link between the ideas. I don't think they're completely... It's not like one minute I want to make a punk record and the next minute I want to make a rave record. Um, it's, it's, within a, it's within a sphere, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's just like constantly... You get something new, you constantly want to try something new all the time, which is the danger of having too much equipment, you see, because when I was very limited... I was stuck with having to kind of get as much as I could out of those things, um, which in some ways is, you know, is, is more creative. 
in many ways it's, it's more creative to have just a few just five or six things to play with and you have to squeeze every last drop out of them you know now we all experience the tyranny of choice whether we're like looking for something to watch on netflix or um you're staring at a hundred plugins in the DAW or a thousand plugins. Um, it's like creative limitation is also like this theme that runs through Seafield's music, especially from this period. Mm. Yeah, and just not being able to, you know, for, for us, like mixing a track down um, kind of really did mean mixing it down far more so than it does today where you can save a mix so you can pretty much within the computer come back if, if assuming you're not really using so much outboard gear you can pretty much come load in the same mix as you had six months ago so if there's something not quite right with it you don't have to revisit and reload and re-level and re-eq everything on a mixing desk you know which is um it's really great but but at the same time that's another kind of if you're a wrestler if you're the sort of person who wants to constantly change things that's a disaster so for some, someone like me it's not a great thing i have to go to so that's why i have to go to a studio to mix albums now because otherwise i just go through this constant revisionism of tracks so i, I start with a track and then i've got a 20th version of that track which is almost nothing like the original because i'm constantly revising it and and it can go on forever and i could never release anything Mm. So the, so this kind of like set it and forget it aspect where like I have to mix this track down tonight was, was crucial to the prolific nature of this period. I, I think so, yeah. And there's not a lot of mixes of those tracks. So when, when again, when I was going back, I was thinking, I wonder if there's like a different mix of Spangle or a different mix of um, Air Eyes or um, which might be interesting for people. But it's really not. There's two, there's two mixes and then it's like the next track. It's, it's, whereas, um, whereas now, yeah, I, I, I have version after version after version, mix after mix after mix. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily make things better or easier. Mm. Mm. It, it's interesting, like, you know, over the course of months, like I, I, I get the feeling that you don't do a massive amount of interviews. Like if, if you had your druthers, you'd just kind of like work away and do your thing. But obviously in light of such a major reissue campaign, you're forced to revisit this period, um, which I think like lends some context as to where Seafield stands in this whole scene, like between bands like the Cocteau Twins and, you know, these like individual producers like Aphex and like the rest of the Warp Stable. Can you speak a little bit about your relationship with the Cocteau Twins? Uh, so um, my relationship with them goes back to when, because uh, when I was growing up and probably from the, about the age of maybe 14 or around 14, when I first ever heard the Cocteau Twins, um, they were like, I'd never heard anything like that. I, I was kind of into music. Um, I like music, um, and I'd kind of dabbled in different things, but mostly rock music at that time. I used to listen to um, something called the Friday Rock Show when I was young. That's that was the first time I really listened to music that wasn't chart music. I just happened to, I can't even remember. I think I happened just to be listening to have Radio One on 
in the daytime mm. and went out and came back and it was still on and it was Tommy Vance's Friday rock show. Um, you know, and that's, and I learned about bands like, oh God knows, like, well, you know, classic bands like Deep Purple or, um, I think like Leonard Skinnerd and yeah, all that kind of stuff. But it was the Cocteau Twins. When I heard that, it was just like, I just never heard anything like this. And, and it also, it, it, it's no disrespect to them. It felt like something I could do, um, myself. I don't mean be them. I just mean that it felt like if I wanted to make music, that, that this was the way for me to go because I, I never saw myself as being a riff. I, I, cause I started playing guitar around that time as well. I forgot to mention that. Mm. Um, but I never saw myself as a riff kind of guitarist. Um, I wasn't really good enough and I didn't think I ever would be because I didn't have the discipline to constantly practice. So suddenly you hear a way of using the guitar that you're like, oh, this is simple. I can do this. And then when you find out also, you know, you, you get some insight into how it's made and you realise that music doesn't have to be like this. It can be like this, the Cocteau Twins. So they were a massive influence on me and their, their music is just, even now to me, it's, it's just beyond just most other music. It's just on another level, really. So anyway, yeah, I basically, when, when we did the, the More Like Space EP, the, our first EP on Warp, I just sent, um, I, I think I sent Liz a copy. Um, and she, Elizabeth wasn't there. And Robin had seen it and he opened opened the, um, the package in the studio and played it, I guess, and liked it and, and sent me a really nice letter back saying how much he loved it and said, you... Um, anytime you want to come and come up to the studio and come and visit, just give me a call. Um, and so you can imagine, you kind of think this is a, a bit like when Sarah got a phone call from John Peel before we got signed. John Peel got one of our demos and really liked it and called Sarah to say how much he loved the loved the demo. And Sarah just thought it was someone playing a joke joke on her, obviously, because John Peel doesn't call you, you know. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing. Um, I just thought, what? Really? Is this real? You know? But it looked, but then I called the number and it was um, Robin. And I, he said, oh yeah, come up. Um, I'm in the studio, whenever it was, next week, next Wednesday, or whatever day it was. And went up there. He played some new stuff that he was working on. We had some tea or coffee, maybe. I don't know. And then he just, it just kind of, he then asked me to do some remixes for, for them. Um, I rehearsed with them, did some TV with them, and then went on tour with them. And then it just happened really quickly. It was, yeah, crazy time, really. Because when I look back on it now, it's it seemed really normal at the time. Apart from the first part of receiving the letter in the first place, it felt really natural because they were, they were such down-to-earth regular, not regular people, but down-to-earth I kind of, I guess in my head, I imagine them like being these kind of real, not saying much and wearing white or I don't know, just living a really strange life or something, but they really didn't. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like in 1995, the Otherness EP comes out with some versions of Cocteau Twins classics like Cherry Colored Funk that you've remixed 
Um, and somehow like this music becomes even more angelic and ethereal in your hands. Some of like my favorite versions ever. And, and wait, so you actually like joined them on stage during this period as well. Yeah, um, so we toured Europe and America, or what well, we toured, <laughs> they toured, and I went, and they they asked me to go with them because Robin wants to do this kind of live remix sequence, which would be so interesting now because technology again would make it so much more flexible. But basically, what I did is I remixed three more songs. I think it was like Wax and Wayne, Aloysius, and Pitch the Baby. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, and they were just played as this kind of one piece of music that didn't stop. It was just kind of like, uh, Robin's guitar was amazing on it. It's just this like massive, massive sound he had, but really stripped as well. No, nothing too much going on in it, just kind of flowing through the music. Um, and I just basically dubbed Liz's voice and dubbed some of the drum sounds and added some like uh, pre-recorded rhythms. Yeah, and then, and then DJ'd after the show. Um, so it was, again, it was just, yeah. Again, it's crazy when you look back at it because it just seems so so normal at the time. When I look back now, I'm just like, huh? How, how did that even happen, really? You know, if you'd said to me when I was 15 that a few years later I'd be remixing and on tour with the Cocteau Twins, it's like, I don't know, it's like by age 30 you've already, like, Live the dream, live the, the the kind of you've you've kind of met, you've um what's the word like your your ambitions are already there they've already they've already done. Mm. You've fulfilled the dream like on, on some level you've like hit this like create a peak or something like that or not I, that's like putting too fine a point on it. Yeah, you've kind of um these things I guess that you in your head are supposed to happen over longer periods of time and then you retire. It doesn't happen quickly, and then you're suddenly like, "Oh, okay." So now, um, which which band do I want to? Which band do I? You know, are my heroes now? <laughs> who, who who do I like? You know, there's nothing like you. It's, that doesn't doesn't work like that. You know, you, you're kind of. Um, and it's kind of when I came back off that tour, I remember being in a bit of a a kind of daze for a while. Um, not not because of the tour necessarily, just just because. I wasn't 100% sure what to do now um, because it was quite a big break from my life as well. It was um, it was a few months really where I, I was with them on and off, not not touring all the time, but rehearsing or doing the remixing and such. So then it, was, it took quite a long time after that for me to actually get back into my own space and just um, yeah find find something new to try. Because I'd done the Distractor album, my, uh, which came out on Warp, but that wasn't really a project that I particularly... It wasn't even supposed to really be a project. It was really just trying out bits of equipment and trying ideas out. But because Steve heard some and he wanted to put it out, that's it came out. But I, I didn't see it as a long-term project at that point. I didn't, So I didn't really want to go and carry on doing that. I kind of wanted to do some more guitar stuff, but um, and did did do some but not really doing anything I was particularly happy with mm. so yeah I, I probably even for like maybe three years after that I, I didn't really do very much that I was happy with I did a lot of music but just nothing I didn't really find anything that I got really excited about at that point
Mm. It's kind of like this like prodigal period after like this, you know, a couple years of like unbelievable leaps and bounds creatively. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess it, there had to be a come down. There had to, it's, I don't know how, if any artist can kind of keep that level up all the time, you're, you're going to have downtime as well because I don't know, you have to restock or your brain has to restock or you have to kind of um, allow yourself time to kind of, I guess like defrag or something to use an old word from computers. You know, you have to kind of have time to, if, if it's just a constant barrage, you don't, you, you never really get organized in your brain. Something like that. I, yeah. I'm probably going too deep into it. No, please. Yeah. David, that's what this is for. That's why we're, you know, doing a podcast. Like, and, and I mean, you know, you had these like fantasies of retirement. And then, you know, you did retire to Seafield Project. Of course, you would always make music, you know, whether with like Disjecta, Wooden Spoon, everything like this. Like, um, but I guess like another parallel with the Cocteaus is, is the band remains this beloved cult band that means so much to people. Um, and can you speak a bit about like the decision to reform? Um, okay, so we had got together two or three times in the meantime, like I think in 97 and 99, we did some a little bit of recording. Um, no, 99, I think it was. So we tried, but it just, again, there was, it didn't feel like there was a spark there. It didn't feel like there was anything new to say. Um, and then I saw Sarah on and off occasionally, but very, very occasionally. But I think it was around 2007 that uh, Beggars or 2PO and Beggars Banquet did the reissue of Keek, the Keek Redux release. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for that reissue, they, Beggars wanted us to do some interviews at their offices, at the 4AD offices, I think it was. Um, and um, so me and Sarah obviously both went and we, we just got chatting and said, let's try some ideas. Um, and it's funny, it was like I, I suddenly got this whole new lease of life and suddenly just started making like loads and loads of tracks. Um, some of which ended up on the album in very different forms, but actually with the stuff, the original stuff before we worked with Shige Nida was much more electronic sounding. Um, not, not electronic, I don't mean it was electronic, but it just, because I was making it and just sending tracks to Sarah, it had a much more... Um, electronic feel to it uh, rhythmically I mean more than anything uh, and then yeah so and then and then I think um, I knew Ida Ida had gone to had played a gig in Ukraine and had introduced me to this artist Katerina Zavaloka um, who I also did an, e an EP with, but she put she was putting on a festival in Kiev, so that was the real kind of motivator to get us to get back and actually do something, because um, we thought yeah let's do it, and then we got Shige and Ida to play because obviously we didn't have a rhythm section at that point, so mm. I already knew Ida and Shige, um, so they came on board, yeah, and then I guess once Warp heard that we played in um, Kiev. They asked us to play the Warp 20 show, was it? Was it Warp 20? I, I lose track of all Warp's anniversaries. 
I think it was. Yeah, think it was. yeah I believe it was. Okay. Then Steve asked us to make a rec- us to make a record. So it was a, it was a weird one because it's kind of like we we started again and we didn't even have to try. Really, we were quite lucky. We didn't have to yeah. really go banging on record company doors saying, "Please release our record." You know, this is just this like trend throughout this auspicious career. Whether it's like John Peel calling you before the record's <laughs> out, it's, it's in, in demand by 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 the industry. Yeah, you know, not, it's, not so much by the by the general public. <laughs> <laughs> industry darlings as it were you know but but no also uh you know the music meant so much to people and this was something that really was hammered home by your tour of the states with the reconstituted band is that correct yeah um which again um was a strange one because we didn't really have anything to promote it, i think the original idea was to at least have the peel sessions come out at that point but the but it was hoped to have the reissues out at that point it's just the reissues got held up and held up and held up because of everything that was going on in the world um so the original idea was to go and tour and then the reissues would be out at the same time and then we'd have some pr- publicity so suddenly we were in this doing this tour with nothing to promote or to promote us basically so it was a bit in a bit of a void this is we 2019 had, 2019 yeah november so yeah, we toured in a bit of a void, really. But so we were quite worried because we kind of thought we didn't really know what the response would be or whether anyone would even know we were playing there. But it was great. It was good crowds and the people were, were amazing. And um, we were lucky because I wanted to put it off till May, twenty twenty. There would have been no tour. It would have been another cancelled Sea Field tour. This was a, this was. A, a great move. I'm glad whoever pushed you to like actually get over to the state. You can thank the U.S. promoter because he'd already he'd already reached out to all these venues and they'd all said yes, and, and he so didn't funny. want to kind of upset them. Yeah, so funny. I, I I mean I know I take I know that you take issue with Seafield uh, being described as a, a shoegaze band, although there is like a clear shoegaze influence. Like you've obviously felt at various points more in line with experimental and electronic music, but there is this idea of shoegaze, specifically the name comes from staring down at the ground and staring down at a pedal board, which you didn't have, I'll note again, but there, there is also this um, other aspect of that where you like look up and you're kind of like surprised that people are there and they're like enjoying this so much. And I feel like you had a, had this experience on tour in 2000. Oh yes, yeah, it happens more than once really, um, where, especially because sometimes we play like we rehearse. So when we rehearse, we tend to, we don't rehearse on the stage, we rehearse facing each other, basically. basically. In the round. Um, yeah, exactly. And so so ne- because we rehearsed a lot and, and we, we, we used to rehearse all the time, even if we weren't playing with jam and all that kind of stuff. So on stage, we kind of would tend to revert back to this facing each other kind of thing, um, and almost sometimes forget the not forget, you don't forget the audience is there, but you kind of um, you do suddenly look and think, oh shit, you know, it's like it brings you back into um, your reality or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah, so in America, I tried sometimes to face forward. I I I'd set my effects up all my pedals up so that I couldn't, so they'd be facing, they'd be kind of parallel with the stage. 
so I'd have to face forward when I was using them. And still, somehow, I managed to kind of always be facing Shige. Because um, <laughs> Shige used to always play side-on as well. Um, mm. In fact, the only one really who who kind of faced the audience most of the time was Sarah. But you felt this feeling of, like, warmth and incredible support. That... Oh, yes, yeah. It, uh, sorry, yes, in the shows, yeah. Yeah, mm. um, just like... I don't know, because it's not like a joyous experience going to see Phil. You know, some of it's it's quite moody in in many ways. Just just people looking so happy, um, and just the people saying to us as well afterwards. You know, that they've literally waited, I don't know, twenty five years or twenty years or fifteen years or whatever. Whenever people found Seafield, um, and it just meant a lot to them. You could tell. Just it was a genuinely. Um, you know, no kind of like, oh, you finally came, did you, kind of attitude, you know, or, um, yeah, just a real warmth, just w wanting us to do well. So if, and we had any kind of slight problems, which didn't happen very often, but, you know, you could feel that they were, they were behind you, mm. you know, like a team, like as if you were a team or something, that they're on your side. And when things aren't quite going well, they want to get behind you. They don't want to like tear you apart. Or, you know, they're kind of um, win or lose, they're behind their team. And, and that's what it felt like a little bit, I guess. Not that mm. I've ever played team sports, so I have no idea. But in how I imagine it would be, you know, because some, you have some fans, some teams, teams who their fans, when things go wrong, are really on their backs. Um, um, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Well, you and, know, if, if, if since we're using so many metaphors, when you're... Um, if you're steering this precarious ship through the mid nineties period, many years later, you know, uh, 16 years later, you're feeling the wind at your back and has this, and this is like transferred into like new studio efforts. You're still releasing all sorts of music, but there's also new sea feel material. Yeah. There's a lot of new stuff. Um, there could be, I mean, right now I could probably, we could probably release four or five albums now. There's so much new stuff. Um, it's um, it's different again because obviously it's really just me working with Sarah. Um, I'm, I've been largely doing the music, and Sarah's been largely doing the vocals. So it has a much. If you know Seafield, you know you can probably imagine how where that's going to take it. It's taken it away from the last album, for example, which um, I got quite fascinated by Shige and Ida. So um, the, the demos for that album are quite a lot different to how the final record turned out. It's, it, so it's 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 much more fluid again than, than the last record. All the stuff mm. is it, um, it's more it's more refined, I think. Mm. Well, you know, this is like wetting the appetites of uh, Seafield down diehards who are you know absolutely willing to wait another 15 years or but hopefully <laughs> hopefully much less than that but you know I, I just wanted to you know congratulate you on all the retrospectives this this music um sounds as ominous and future forward as it did i imagine like the day it was released and recorded uh, like thank you so much for this incredible body of work oh thank you for listening to it that's the thing that I, I love is the fact people actually listen to it still. I mean, you know, I, I, it always, it's always transportive.
Um, Mark, thank you so much for for speaking with me uh, through through somewhat dodgy internet connections, and uh, yeah, can't wait to hear new music, both both your own solo music, new sea feel. Um, thanks again. Okay, thanks, Matthew. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Mark Clifford of Seafeel and Matt McDermott. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to Andrew Mensah's conversation with the booking agent Hannah Schogboller. Their chat is available on all platforms right now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then... Take care.